This is the History of the World podcast with me, Chris Hasler. And you're listening to Volume 3, The Classical World. Episode 37, The Profile of Julius Caesar, Part 2. Julius Caesar was now around 40 years of age and he had already gained a reputation for being a dangerously influential politician within the Roman Republic. He had followed the Cursus Honorum, the political ladder to the highest levels of Roman politics and was hugely popular with the citizens of Rome, largely because he was a charismatic orator. Caesar wanted to take the next step in his personal journey to the forefront of Roman politics and he wanted to become one of the two consuls of Rome. Caesar needed finance to influence the result of the election and so he went to a man called Marcus Licinius Crassus. Crassus was a man who had proven his worth in the Roman Republic. Crassus was an optimate politician who had become a notable military commander at a young age. He also learned how to make money through exploiting the wealth of political enemies as well as sound investment. It seems that Crassus was driven by financial gain. Crassus was very keen to have a personal ally as a consul, so that decisions could be made that were favourable to his personal investments. He had tried and failed previously with others and now he was willing to back Caesar's bid. Another man who had become disillusioned with the Roman Senate was the great military leader and statesman called Gnaeus Pompeius. Pompey had campaigned long and hard in the Asiatic lands of Anatolia and the Near East and had been extremely successful. He now returned to Rome to find that the Senate were reluctant to recognise his success and this prompted Pompey to look for an ally who could influence this seemingly corrupt Senate from within. With Crassus's backing, Caesar was successful in securing his consulship in 59 BCE. And now Caesar, Crassus and Pompey had direct influence over one of the two consul positions of Rome. Retrospectively, we call this three-way political alliance the First Triumvirate. It may never have been called the Triumvirate had Cicero also decided to join the political pact, which he was invited to do by Caesar. Cicero declined believing it to be unconstitutional. Other politicians such as Cato the Younger actively stood against Caesar. When Caesar as consul put forward a new land bill that would favour distribution to war veterans among others, despite the bill not having any direct consequence to the wealth of the aristocracy due to it being funded by Pompey's success in Asiatic lands, Cato would deliberately sabotage its progress. Roman tradition meant that there were always two Roman consuls. Caesar was one, and the other one at the time was a man called Marcus Calpurnius Bibulus. Bibulus would also actively stand against Caesar's bills, deliberately disrupting the duty of the Senate and preventing Caesar's bills from being voted in. By this time Roman politics were in a complete mess and everyone was having to look over their shoulders constantly in fear of their own lives. A man called Vettius ran into the forum with a dagger and it looked like his target was Pompey. 
Vettius was unsuccessful, but this opened up a concern about who put Vettius up to it. Many names were put forward, including Cicero, Cato the Younger, Bibulus, and even Lucullus, whose glory in the East was robbed from him by Pompey. Nobody ever found out who was behind the failed attack, if indeed anybody was at all. What Caesar was able to achieve during his consulship was the ratification of Pompey's acquisitions in the East, which Pompey had been hoping for, and securing the governorship of Gaul for himself so that Caesar would be able to campaign and bring the transalpine Gauls of Central Europe to heel and further extend the reach of the Roman Republic. However, after one year of the consulship of any consul, it must come to an end. So the members of the Triumvirate had to start taking steps to ensure that their influence would extend beyond the consulship period of Julius Caesar. Pompey became married to Julia, Caesar's daughter by Cornelia, which would strengthen the bond between the two unlikely allies, Caesar and Pompey. Caesar would also take a new wife for himself and her name was Calpurnia and she was the daughter of a man called Lucius Calpurnius Piso Caesonius, who would become a Roman consul in 58 BCE, the year after Caesar. The Gallic Wars With Caesar's consulship now over, he would need to turn his attention to repaying his debts. Thanks to Pompey and Piso, Caesar would now be granted the ability to take military legions into Transalpine Gaul, a place where he had been granted a five-year governorship since the mysterious death of the previous governor, Quintus Caecilius Metellus Cella. Caesar would look towards this as an opportunity to enhance his legacy and acquire the wealth to repay his debts and realise his desire to be wealthy. Caesar's ambitions in Gaul were also generally popular due to the Gallic threat being feared by the Romans. Cicero himself would cite the Gallic raiders that had terrorised the northern fringes of the Roman Republic reaches as a similar level of threat to that which had been posed by King Mithridates VI of Pontus in previous decades. Caesar's initial campaigns in Transalpine Gaul in 58 BCE were very encouraging. Firstly, he would defeat the Elveti tribe who occupied the Swiss plateau before marching north to the lands of Alsace and those Germanic tribes who occupied them. There, Caesar would score a victory against the Suebi tribe led by a man called Ariovistus, thereby pushing these Germanic people back to the north. Caesar then continued on northwards into the lands of modern-day Belgium, where he scored victories over the Nervi and the tribes of the Belgae, with whom the Nervi were closely associated. So this now means that Caesar had carved a path to the coastline of the North Sea. Back in Rome, despite Pompey being on the opposite side of the political spectrum to Caesar, there was still enough opposition within the Senate to the Triumvirate in general to make Pompey and Crassus feel great concern that their power was waning. And so by 56 BCE, despite it being over two years since the end of Caesar's consulship, there was still a purpose to be served by the three-way alliance. So the three of them stuck together to ensure that both Pompey and Crassus would be elected as the consuls in 55 BCE and that Caesar's governorship of Gaul would extend for a further five years. Caesar's campaigning in Gaul continued to cause mixed feelings within the Senate. On one hand, there would have been Roman adulation for Caesar putting down these long-term Roman enemies and gathering more wealth for the Republic. On the other hand, 
many would have feared the increasing power and stock of Caesar and the repercussions of such a barbaric treatment of the Celtic and Germanic tribes in the future. Heading westwards to the coast of the English Channel, Caesar would take on the Veneti of Armorica. Armorica is that northwestern area of France which we know today as Brittany. It appeared that the Veneti were gaining the support of tribes of the British Isles, so Caesar would plan to cross the waters and deal with the threat there. Caesar would have to make more than one attempt to cross the Channel and subdue the tribes of Great Britain, but he succeeded and managed to eliminate the British Celtic threat by forcing them to sue for peace. It was now that a sequence of events would mean that the first triumvirate very suddenly became ineffective. As stated previously, Caesar and Pompey were always on opposite sides of the political spectrum, but they had common friends and common enemies within the political system, which meant that they could help each other to attain what each of them required. We know that Pompey had married Caesar's daughter, Julia, but in 54 BCE, Julia died during childbirth and this would create a personal chasm between Caesar and Pompey. Then in 53 BCE, Crassus would be murdered in the direct aftermath of the Battle of Carrhae, as we described in episode 33. So neither man would have their healthy ally now that they had lost their common friend. While all of this was taking place, the Gauls had also managed to start scoring victories against the Romans and this was while all of this was distracting Caesar and it was the tribe of the Senones who were turning the table, bizarrely the same tribe that had successfully sacked Rome in 390 BCE and had cemented their reputation as a legendary Roman enemy. By 52 BCE, the political situation in Rome had become so bad that the Senate desperately voted to elect Pompey as the sole consul. But Pompey no longer felt that he owed any further loyalty to Caesar, with their alliance now having no value. Both Pompey and Caesar would become increasingly paranoid about whether their intentions individually would involve the suppressing of the power of the other. It may be that Pompey feared the popularity of Caesar would compromise his own motivation to be the Roman figurehead for optimate politics. Therefore, Caesar would fear that Pompey would make official decisions that would break up his army and force him to return to Rome to live a humble life in the shadows. Huge distrust started to manifest itself between the two of them. By this time, Caesar had returned to Gaul in order to take back control of the situation there and had managed to score an incredible victory against the confederation of Gallic tribes at Elysia and kidnapping their commander, Vercingetorix, as a prisoner of war, which is the story that we told in episode 34. Although there was a bit of mopping up to do over the course of the next couple of years, the victory at Elysia marked the point where victory against the Gauls was pretty much assured and so Caesar reached the end of his 10 year governorship as the victor over the Gauls. Although this great victory and extension of the Roman Republic should be celebrated and congratulated, we are all too aware that Pompey and his followers were fearful of the adulation that Caesar may receive and the danger that this would pose to the optimate political faction. Therefore, the Senate convened and under the strong influence of Pompey, they decided that now Caesar's governorship had come to an end, that there was no longer a requirement for Caesar to keep the Roman legions allocated to him, and that he should disband the army and return to Rome. Caesar knew full well that this was an optimate attempt to downplay Caesar's achievements and to take all of his strength and influence away from him. Caesar's army had seen a lot of service under him and had achieved great things and would have expected to be rewarded for their success. 
They felt that Caesar deserved their loyalty and so when Caesar refused to surrender his power and disband his army, his army stayed loyal and stood by his side. If Caesar crossed the Rubicon River back into the Italian peninsula without disbanding his army, then this would be a declaration of war against the Roman Republic. However, if Caesar crossed back into Rome alone, then who knows what lengths his political enemies would go to in order to keep Caesar from instigating a popularis revolution. Caesar decided that the best way to deal with this predicament was to take on the Roman Senate head on. So he marched across the Rubicon with his army intact. Civil War Pompey and the Senate needed to prepare themselves for Caesar's arrival. When Caesar crossed the Rubicon, his influence was strong, especially with his army by his side. Towns and cities would allow Caesar passage, and this was a serious threat to Pompey. Pompey and the Senate soon realised that Caesar was too powerful, and that if he did indeed march on Rome, then he would probably take it. Pompey and many members of the Roman Senate decided to flee the city, and they would travel as far as Epirus on the Balkan Peninsula. Soon, the Roman Republic would be divided in their loyalties. Some chose the popular Julius Caesar to perhaps take Rome and become its sole emperor. Others wanted to maintain the status quo and would support the main optimate representative, Pompey, who would have had the support of the Senate, considering that their power would be maintained if Caesar was kept out. Roman legions in Hispania had raised their voices in favour of Pompey. So Caesar decided to head in that direction and deal with the military threat head on, rather than wait to be chased down. Caesar would besiege the coastal city of Massalia, which is the modern French city of Marseille, on his way over to Hispania through the Pyrenees Mountains. Caesar would go on to defeat the Pompeians in Hispania, but also Pompeian forces in North Africa defeated Caesarian forces, so it wasn't all one-way traffic. However, Pompey still remained at large, so Caesar decided to return to Rome at the end of the year, which was 49 BCE. Caesar gained the appointment of dictator, but then understandably resigned as soon as he secured the consulship again. One of his closest allies, Mark Antony, was appointed as the master of the horse, which was equivalent to an assistant dictator. Caesar was very keen to deal with Pompey, who he knew would be able to mount a powerful attack on Caesar if allowed to gather the manpower. Caesar therefore didn't waste any more time in travelling to the Balkan Peninsula to take up the issue. When Caesar arrived in the Balkan Peninsula, the number of his forces was considerably lower than he would have liked. Pompey decided that it would therefore be best to attack Caesar before the arrival of Mark Antony and his forces, therefore taking advantage of Caesar's inferior numbers. Pompey scored a victory at Dyrrhachium, obliging Caesar to retreat. But Pompey's hesitance to finish off the job meant that Mark Antony arrived to increase the size of Caesar's army, so that when the two armies met again at Pharsalus, this time it was Caesar who won the day, and Pompey was forced to flee the area. Pompey took to the sea, and his destination was Egypt. Egypt was being ruled by two rival pharaohs at the time, Ptolemy XIII and his sister wife, Cleopatra VII. It would be Ptolemy XIII who would welcome Pompey ashore. 
a small boat was sent out to Pompey's ship to bring him safely to Egyptian dry land. Pompey boarded the boat, and just as it was reaching the shallows, Pompey was stabbed in the back by Ptolemy's men, before they beheaded him, taking the head and abandoning the corpse. Four days later, and Caesar arrived in Egypt. Ptolemy's men would present the severed head of Pompey to Caesar as a trophy of their loyalty to him. Caesar was far from impressed that they had killed a great military Roman statesman and his former ally. So Caesar decided to stand against Ptolemy Thirteenth in this episode of Egyptian history called the Alexandrine Civil War, which saw Ptolemy Thirteenth battling against his sister wife Cleopatra VII for outright control of the Egyptian kingdom. Caesar was in a foreign land with limited resources, however. But fortunately, there were also neighbours of Egypt who had an interest in the outcome of politics in Egypt and who would be willing to support the cause of Caesar and Cleopatra. And this would sway the outcome of the Alexandrine War in their favour. For example, the Kingdom of Pontus, which had once been led by its great ruler Mithridates VI, was now being rebuilt by his son, Pharnaces II, who was taking advantage of the fact that Rome was distracted by its own civil conflict by asserting itself on the Roman-supported lands of Anatolia. One of those lands was Pergamon, and an illegitimate son of Mithridates VI and a half-brother of Pharnaces, who was an important statesman of Pergamon, had a direct interest in rescuing Caesar. When Caesar was able to break the deadlock in Egypt thanks to these allies, he would chase Ptolemy XIII out of Egypt and allow Cleopatra VII to rule in her own right. In terms of cementing the alliance between Caesar and Egypt, it was often the case in ancient times for kingdoms to intermarry to bolster the stock of the ruling dynasties involved. In Rome, it was not the case as Romans were only permitted to marry Roman women. So the next best thing in this case would be for Caesar to consummate his alliance with Cleopatra by ensuring that her offspring would be his. And so in 47 BCE, Cleopatra gave birth to Caesar's son, Caesarion. To maintain the loyalty of Pergamon, Caesar would initiate a military campaign against Pharnaces II of Pontus, which would culminate at the Battle of Zella, which we covered in episode 35. Pharnaces II was defeated and Pontus was restored to Roman rule. The half-brother of Pharnaces II, who had helped Caesar to win in Egypt, was now installed as King Mithridates I of Pergamon. So Caesar had made a great job of consolidating the Roman position in the eastern Mediterranean. Now he had to turn his attention back to the civil war. Pompey may have been dead, but it was a senatorial issue that had led to the civil war in Rome and optimate opposition to Caesar's rise to power. That was the core issue. Caesar returned to Rome in 46 BCE and quickly began confiscating the property of all of those who had supported the cause of Pompey in a bid to gain as much power and influence as possible, with his aim to completely put down his opposition. The Optimates started to gather together a large army in North Africa, in the old Carthaginian lands in Numidia. Notable participants were one of Caesar's old political enemies from the early days of the Triumvirate, Cato the Younger, and two of Pompey's sons, Sextus and Pompey the Younger. 
Caesar would defeat this army at the Battle of Thapsus and Cato the Younger committed suicide in the wake of the battle. Caesar was said to have been upset by Cato's suicide, which is similar to his reaction to Pompey's death. It seems that Caesar never delighted in the death of his political enemies, despite them having taken up arms against him. The remnants of the defeated Optimate army in North Africa, which included Pompey's two sons, fled to Hispania, where the last remaining threats to Caesar gathered together under the command of Titus Labienus. Caesar would have undoubtedly viewed Labienus as one of the biggest turncoats that he had had the misfortune of doing business with. Just ten years previous, and Labienus was one of Caesar's closest and most trusted military commanders. Labienus was responsible for Caesar's legionaries during the Gallic Wars when Caesar was absent, and Caesar even named him as the governor of Chisalpine Gaul when it became apparent that the Romans had defeated the Gauls. However, when the Senate demanded that Caesar disband his army before Caesar made that fateful decision to cross the Rubicon, Labienus decided that Caesar had gone too far and decided to switch sides and support Pompey instead. He would take with him many men and a lot of knowledge of Caesar's military strategies. Four years later and Caesar would now have the opportunity to deal with Labienus directly. Caesar would travel with eight military legions to Hispania and the climax of the conflict would take place at the Battle of Munda. Labienus's legions actually outnumbered those of Caesar and the Battle of Munda itself was a hard-fought battle. A tactical move made by Caesar's ally, King Bogud of Mauritania, would encourage the victory for Caesar. Caesar's estranged ally Labienus was killed on the battlefield and in some accounts was ultimately given a burial with full honours by Caesar himself. Pompey's sons fled and this was the end of the round of Roman civil conflicts which have retrospectively been labelled as Caesar's civil war. Caesar was the victor in a long series of events that had played themselves out over the last decade and a half since the emergence of the Triumvirate. Return to Rome Caesar was now in his mid-fifties and his life so far had been eventful. From the origins of being closely associated to the famous popularis Gaius Marius, his travels far and wide as a young adult from Hispania in the west to Bithynia in the east, his quest to climb the political ranks within Rome using his character and influence, his pursuit of military and political glory by any means necessary, whether it be through financial irresponsibility, successful command of armed forces and strange bedfellows while keeping that core value of belief in the popularist cause. Then his reaction to the ultimate put-down by those paranoid senators fearing his wide influence, taking them on and even defeating them. Caesar was a man of huge influence, popularity, resourcefulness and execution. And the result of sacrifices made by the Gracchi brothers, Gaius Marius and many others who fought against a greedy capitalistic regime which protected the wealth of the few. Caesar would celebrate his own rise to power by making sure that he would be appointed the Roman dictator for life. And it might have left a bad taste in the mouths of many, but there are few that could argue that anyone else did more to earn that right. Coins were minted depicting the face of the supremely powerful man himself. 
However, Caesar was overseeing a republic torn apart by civil war and class suppression. And so the hard work was really about to start alongside a renewed Senate. Caesar's reforms of the Roman Republic were radical and sudden in what I have seen described as a socialistic redistribution of wealth. Tens of thousands of plebeians, army veterans and destitute families were granted allocations of land. Employment was created with the creation of repair and irrigation projects within many cities. A new calendar, the Julian calendar, would organise the year more closely to agricultural seasons. The balance of wealth and opportunity was now able to flow in the direction of non-aristocratic members of society, which understandably was not popular among many aristocrats. Caesar's next plan would be to take on the mighty Parthians in Asiatic lands who were posing a threat to Roman interests in the East. We spoke about Parthian expansion back in episode 3. The date was the 15th of March 44 BCE and Caesar was travelling to the Senate. A man called Gaius Cassius Longinus had been waiting and planning for this day. Cassius was part of the ill-fated Roman army of Crassus that had been crushed by the Parthians at Carrhae nine years earlier. Cassius would have had an ally in his plans and his name was Marcus Unius Brutus, a man who had been granted amnesty by Caesar after choosing to side with Pompey during the civil war. These two men had been meeting in secret for some time with others who had a like-minded view that Caesar was ruling Rome like a tyrant ruler, similar to those military coups of Greek city-states in centuries gone by. They feared that Caesar was trying to gain absolute power and destroy aristocratic privileges and senatorial influence. Many of these so-called liberators of Rome stood to lose a lot of their wealth and private agreements that kept them in the lucrative lifestyle that they were accustomed to. Many of them were also senators or of senatorial status. Caesar was planning to leave for Asiatic lands in just a few days so the liberators decided that today was the day to act. What happened next has been at the mercy of poetic license for whoever has been reporting it or portraying it, whether it be by Plutarch, who seemingly had a bit more of a Republican bias in his opinion, or by William Shakespeare, the 16th century British playwright, looking to maintain his reputation as a skilled storyteller. It seems that Caesar arrived and that there may have been attempts to warn him of danger, whether it be by surreptitiously passed notes or by the soothsayer called Spurina. Soothsayers being mystical fortune tellers and predictors of the future. When Caesar arrived at the Senate, he was allowed to assume his chair respectfully. Caesar would be presented with a petition and a flurry of commotion broke out around Caesar, who was by now surrounded by frantic senators. And this was all part of the plan to get close to Caesar himself. Caesar had been lured to the Senate and was now surrounded by those who had the opportunity to show their true intentions. Attempts to stab Caesar where he sat caused Caesar to try and flee. Only armed with a stylus, Caesar would have absolutely no chance in defending himself against an angry mob of senators who had conspired and decided that this should be the last day of Julius Caesar's life. Caesar tried to escape but was overcome being stabbed continuously before falling at the base of Pompey's statue. 
One of the last attackers that Caesar is reported to have seen was Brutus himself. This may not be a surprise considering that Caesar and Brutus have been on opposite sides of the Civil War, but portrayals have famously depicted Caesar as being surprised and disappointed to witness Brutus's involvement. And this is because some historians have suggested that Brutus was in fact a son of Caesar himself. Plutarch states that Caesar was stabbed 23 times. And so this is the end of his story. What's happened next is a story for another time. But the death of Caesar marked a time in Roman history where things could never, ever be the same again. For those trying to normalise Rome by eliminating Caesar, they could not have realised how destabilising their act would be for the entire Roman Republic. Senators not involved feared these new liberators. The population wanted the senators' blood for what they had done to their great leader, who had given them hope of a brighter future. Rome was about to fall apart. In the aftermath of Caesar's death, a comet flew through the sky. This comet was depicted on coins minted in the wake of Caesar's death, and this would only create a mythological air around Julius Caesar's legacy that caused Romans to eventually celebrate him as a god. And maybe that same god that Caesar may have wanted to become when he was looking up at that statue of Alexander the Great in Hispania many, many years before. There you go, the fascinating story of Julius Caesar. What a wonderful story, and uh, we're glad we put that together. Too big for one part alone, and uh, it's it's good to have got the got to the end of that. It really does sort of wrap up a period of Roman history, which is incredibly fascinating. Just uh, analysing that downward spiral of the Republic and how it all fell apart, and it, really that that is a story of uh, an entire century of of uh, of a split sort of coming along and 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 a widening gap and and many many different characters involved in that uh, in that story from right back from Marius and Sulla through to the triumvirate and and the associated po- politicians of that area and it, the fascination with Rome is that it it there were so many other areas of the world that that Rome affected so you can't get away from from Rome in in any story from this era, really, in terms of like uh, European, African, Asiatic lands. So, um, really enjoyed bringing that to you that one. So, I've uh, I've got a lot to get through this week, so I'm going to plough on. Emails first. Just go back through the emails that we've received. We didn't go through anything last week, so I'm gonna I'm gonna try and breeze through these. Got an email from Todd Smith, who's a, a an old favourite of the podcast. He he's, he was one of the first people to ever get in touch with the podcast. He says hi, Chris. Great to see the growth of the podcast. I discovered it early on and have enjoyed listening all along. Uh, question: Do you write and follow a script word for word, or do you speak freely from an outline? Curious for my own podcast. Keep up the good work. Um, to, well, Todd, I'm I'm fascinated to hear that you're starting your own podcast. Um, I'm keen to know what subject matter you're you're going to be tackling. Um, in terms of my preparation for this podcast, yes, I do. I always script it because personally, I don't have very good sort of focus ability you know when even when i'm speaking freely now i tend to sort of get tongue-tied stumble across my words and um and are quite a lot that's just my nature so if i've got something scripted um i tend to read that off quite well i tend to uh, i tend to cope better with the script um to be honest with you i think it, it should be scripted as well like in terms of the uh, conveying something of quality you have to 
get it down on paper and, and, and really feel like that you have covered everything that you should cover or needs to be covered. So um, that's the answer to that question. Thanks for writing in, Todd. That, I really appreciate the message. We've also got one from uh, Charles London, who's put, I thoroughly enjoy your podcast. I'm wondering about the migration of Homo erectus out of Africa. So we're really going back, right back in into the history of the podcast. Out of the three possible migrations, um, which, just to sort of briefly remind you, we discussed the the three possible migrations out of Africa that Homo erectus um, could have realistically taken. The first one going across uh, the Sinai Peninsula out of uh, Egypt, the land crossing. And then there's there's two other like, straits of water that are quite narrow. One um, separates Africa from Arabia uh, at Bab al-Mendeb, um, the, the gateway to the Red Sea. The other one is the Strait of Gibraltar, which is like the gateway to the Mediterranean Sea, which separates North Africa from, from Europe. Uh, Charles has put, um, out of the three possible migrations, the way out of Somalia into present-day Yemen seems to have an issue. Fresh water has to be a concern unless Yemen had more rivers one million years ago. If Homo erectus left North Africa into the Iberian Peninsula, there should have been much more water in rivers there compared to Yemen. Any thoughts? Yeah, uh, you're right. I mean, I think the the Arabian Peninsula is quite is extremely craggy um, in terms of there's not not as much agricultural opportunity as you would probably get in a, in the Iberian Peninsula. I, I, I would agree. Um, having said that, though, I mean, I think, you know, I've got visions of Homo erectus looking out across that stretch of water. And, and, and even if he couldn't successfully colonise uh, the Arabian Peninsula, he would have certainly probably attempted the crossing, I would imagine. Um, uh, the other thing that I, I find absolutely fascinating is this, this discovery of the Therapithecus, which is like, uh, I think it's, if I'm not mistaken, it's like a type of gelada, I think, um, that you can only find in, in Ethiopia these days. Um, but they found a Therapithecus uh, remain um, in Cueva Victoria, in uh, near Cartagena, which is in Spain. And um, that, uh, that animal shouldn't be there. It should only be in Africa. So like, if that animal has reached Cueva Victoria then um, the crossing must have been possible. Uh, thanks very much, Charles. Thanks for the message. Fascinating to talk about that. So very quickly, before we move on to other stuff, I, I just want to give a nod of appreciation to those new uh, patrons of the podcast who have very kindly uh, gone to the Patreon page for the website and uh, made a monthly donation, a pledge to make a monthly donation to the project. And uh, it's something you can do yourself as well. You can go and make a, a monthly donation or pledge to make a monthly donation for as little as $1 a month. When you do, you're invited to be a lifelong member of the History of the World podcast Illuminati. You can qualify for associated gifts as well, which is all outlined on that on, on that web page. And if you want to access that web page, you simply go to the History of the World Podcast website and, uh, and navigate to Patreon. And um, I just want to say thank you to new patrons this week, new members of the History of the World Podcast Illuminati. Um, we have Kim Brown, Justin Wagray, Marcus. Uh, and we also have Lynn Dowling, all, all, in, all now in the History of the World podcast Illuminati. Thank you ever so much. These contributions make the podcast so much better and, and the possibilities um, of the podcast are made that, that much more wide-ranging thanks to these donations. So I'd like to say a big thank you to each of you. Um, reviews. Um, nice to let everyone know uh, the reviews. The first one is uh, from one of our new patrons, a new History of the World podcast Illuminati uh, member, Lynn Dowling, has put one good thing about the pandemic. A girlfriend finally persuaded me at age 67 to take up knitting. 
suggesting it would help to fill the extra hours of quarantine. She also suggested I start listening to podcasts while doing so. I found this one at the top of the Apple podcast recommendations. Wow, I can't believe that. Uh, So Chris, your weekly entreaties have certainly paid off. I started at episode one and finally at episode 55 decided it was high time I rated the podcast and became a patron. I'm not sure what I can add to the accolades you get each week except to say your podcast has ticked off a long-standing item on my bucket list. I always felt deficient in my understanding of world history and your podcast is all I have ever wanted and more. I thought about taking a class online but this is so much better. On my time and schedule and while I'm doing something productive I suspect I'm not the only one who's found you during the pandemic. Chris, your organisation Diction and enthusiasm is wonderful, as so many have said previously, and more eloquently. All I can say is thank you for bringing something so valuable to my life. I have listened to you all summer long and never get tired of the way you present each episode. Congratulations on a great creation. Look, thanks for that. It's such a warm... I'm always astonished by how much warmth um, some people put into their messages to me. So it's very humbling. And... Um, I I have to say um I don't like I think the project that I'm doing I think is is caused by the fact that information is so much more accessible now than it ever has been and that it is possible for you know anyone like me to be able to sit down in the comfort of their own living room and gain enough material to be able to put forward something comprehensive and uh, I, I think if I hadn't have done it, it would have only been a matter of time before someone else did. And, and potentially there will be others that do it. So um, you'll be able to sort of utilise the, the work of many people to learn what you want to learn about the history of the world. So thank you very much for that kind message, Lynn. Uh, Tommy27 um has put um just outstanding thoroughly and entertaining the information is dense and well researched but chris's presentation is such that it's very easily accessible i'm just beginning episode 12 really enjoyed all the insights and history so far chris is fantastic in his delivery clear and succinct and not without some great great flourishes and personal theories i've never noticed a flourish that's wonderful a great flourish uh, make no mistake, this podcast is very well researched and educational, but fun word choices, segues, and the caster's evident enthusiasm make for great listening. Chris seems to have done the legwork and diligently so shows respect for the archaeologists and scientists that he cites. Good audio quality and clear material online allows easy for follow, easy for following, and makes it simple to jump right back in. Just altogether very well done. In, like oh, another warm message, thank you, uh, Tommy Two Seven. Um, I think yes, the archaeologists and scientists are the ones that have done all the the hard work, haven't they? I'm I'm just doing the the very simple part. So quite right that, that they should be respected. Um, Tim Ritter Bush has put. Um, Thanks so much. Very well done. Organised and easy list to listen to. Helps put all of human history into context. Um, I'm going to struggle to read that. What's that? But BK Lim Baby Blue. But BK Lim Baby Blue has put um, Corona Joy. <laughs> oh, goodness me. Corona Joy. I've, ne- I've never read such a phrase. This, this should be interesting. I have found podcasts help me relax during the isolation of COVID-19. I have finished volume one, The History of Prehistoric Man, and I am definitely hooked. I am working my way uh, through volume two on the ancient civilizations. The podcaster Chris is knowledgeable and has a great sense of humour. Uh, like, well... I don't know, laugh, laughing at a headline like Corona Joy, does that qualify me for having a great sense of humour? I don't know. Um, I, the corona has, has given us anything but joy, but um, wonderful uh, review. Thank you so much. Uh, Minerva S has put, I'm learning and enjoying this podcast and I look forward to the episodes. Great job. Thank you. And uh, I think that's it. I think we've got all of those reviews. Um, just coincidentally, were all made from the United States of America. So thank you to all the Americans. Rest of the world, uh, wake up. Where are you? Where are you? We need you to 
review as well. We can't just have it all from the USA. Um, we're, we're all listening all around the world. And uh, But thank you anyway. And, and thank you to everyone who does listen all around the world. I know you do listen. Um, the, I'm talking about other players. If I, if I go on to Castbox, there's also been a message that's been left from Melanie Palmery from France who's put hello Chris I'm crazy about your podcast I'm so glad I came across this one I've listened to volumes one and two twice far uh, from far my favorite podcast together with the history of English thanks for sharing so much knowledge the history of English that's a fantastic podcast if you've never listened to that strongly recommend that Kevin Stroud the history of English there's just so much um, useless information in there that's like just absolutely fascinating. If you want to learn um, amazing little facts about the language that we speak, Kevin Stroud has nailed it. So if you if you get a chance, just go and listen to that one. Um, Facebook, um, Hung Yi has put, Hey Chris, I'm Lycan all the way from Malaysia. I'm at Volume 1, Episode 10 now and wanted to say thank you for the great work you did. I'm really enjoying listening. Keep it going. And then Gregory Allen Savily, the second, has put, Chris, I think your podcast rocks. I love the sound effects and fresh perspective you put on world events. Don't let the haters get you down. I mean, that must be in response to people complaining about the, the voice of God and the trumpets and things like that. Build, create and keep on innovating. You are an inspiration to us all. Way to go. Thank you very much, Gregory. Well, uh, that's it. I've, I've tried to get through all of that a uh, hundred miles an hour. I didn't want to keep you too long, but then also I always want to acknowledge the kind messages that people send me, and I think they do deserve to be published. Um, looking forward next week, I think we're gonna have a we're gonna we're not gonna have a proper episode next week. I think such is my life at the moment that it's going to be difficult for me to publish. Um, a full episode um, but um, I will as ever stick out an unscripted episode but I think it will be just the one and then it will be back to normal with the story of what happened after Caesar's lifetime we're going to be looking at um, Mark Antony and Octavian we're going to be looking at the first Emperor Augustus so all of that to look forward to anyway God, I need to catch my breath. That that was that was uh, some episode. Um, thank you very much for listening, and uh, we'll see you next time on the History of the World podcast. Until then, and until next time, make sure you be good. Do you want more from the History of the World podcast? Then visit our website, historyoftheworldpodcast.com. You can join our discussion forum find us on social media support the podcast for as little as one dollar per month by clicking the patreon link email the show at history of the world podcast at mail.com the best ones will be read out be sure to rate and review the show wherever you listen to us